some notes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. So this is, a, as I was saying before we went on, this is, um, this is new to me and new to Josh. This is kind of a hobby which, which I think allows us to meet interesting people. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're my very first guest, and it's, it's, it's great to see you. I remember the first time I saw you, the first time I met you, was I was walking to the Slow Lounge at um, Cape Town International, and, and you had parked your car at that, at that uh, kind of valet parking. And you were walking in, and I had a mate of mine who, who uh, we'll talk about. He was a big guy, and I, I thought, here's my opportunity. And I came across to say, <laughs> congratulations on the diet, whatever. And that was like four or five years ago. And, uh, and then Wayne and I came to see you in your yes. offices in, in, in uh, sports science. And it was, it was amazing because it, your office is an intimidating office. It's a big yeah. office with, with uh, kind of sports memorabilia everywhere. And, and uh, you know, from then it kind of planted a seed. So yeah, as my first guest, I, I come bearing gifts. I've got Thank a you, Mark. A, a dry white wine for you, which is the lowest sugar content I could find. If it's, if it's too much, then, then Christmas gift for somebody. <laughs> Thank you. There's a, there's a Banting Bog, Banting Granola Bar that I found. There's macadamia nuts covered in, um, in some kind of raw honey and chocolate. There's, these are quite interesting. Um, these ginger macadamias, and macadamias are quite fatty. And then these these coconut uh, chips. chips. Gosh, I've never seen those. No, so I mean one and like the first point was South Africa doesn't doesn't really seem to have a um, a, a snack a banting snack market yet. And I imagine from an entrepreneurial perspective, it must be a massive opportunity because you can't take the sweet tooth. You, people still crave that sweet tooth, and it'd be so nice if you could kind of give them something that they could chew and that could be healthy. Yeah, this is where the, the problems arise. Because if you're proper banting, you don't snack. Yeah. And so that's the issue. And you try to get rid of the sweet taste. And so we, we promote real foods. Yeah. And so we're not necessarily promoting sugar or sweetened products. Right. One of the great problems with weight control is sugar addiction. And my view, after many years thinking about it, is that sugar addiction is the is the driver of obesity, and most of the people who don't address their weight problems don't address the sugar addiction. And so, if you are relatively healthy and you're lean, yes, indeed, you can snack on these products which which are sweetened. But the more ill you are, and the more insulin resistant you are, yeah. and the more sugar addicted you are, it's like alcohol. You either drink it or you don't. Yeah, you've got to stop You've cold. got to stop cold. So I agree that there is a role for, for these products, but that's really for the healthy people right. who, who it might encourage to become even healthier. But for the people who, like myself, have type 2 diabetes, I, I don't think there's any role for them. So I'm really proud. I've reversed my type 2 diabetes. It's taken me seven years, and I haven't had a sweet tasting product for for seven years That's because I was a, a real sugar addict which I didn't recognize of course and was the sugar coming from um, uh, on your part was it coming from sweets or was it coming from breads and pastas yeah breads and pastas correct but also sugar I used to add teaspoons of sugar and I used to drink tea as a vehicle to get the sugar right but of course I didn't realize it at the time yeah, yeah. and the, but you're quite correct there, there is sugar addiction I think there's also a carbohydrate addiction yeah for potato and bread, and particularly bread. Yeah. The, the shills for the industry 
obviously say there's no such thing as sugar addiction and there's no such thing as potato or grain addiction. And, you know, the, there's this whole, this whole culture of saying, no, the scientists who say there is sugar addiction are wrong. But I've seen enough evidence, and certainly in myself, there's clear evidence for addiction. You see, the problem for the food industry is if they ever acknowledge that there is a sugar addiction, they acknowledge that they're the cause of the obesity epidemic, sure. and that's, they can't afford to allow that to happen. So we will continue, unfortunately, with this argument that actually there's no such thing as sugar addiction, and you can have a moderate amount of sugar, which, which for some people it's fine. My wife is a classic example. She takes two teaspoons of sugar a day, and that's it, and she limits herself to that. And she can, she's happy. She's and she's happy, and, and, that, but, and if she doesn't have it, she's not happy. Yeah. But it, it's never more than two, two. In fact, it's almost like one a day, and, that, and she can stick. And same, she can eat a square of chocolate. I can't. Not even, not, not even kind of 80%? Well, if it's, I can now, okay. but, but, but I couldn't before. Really? Okay. But if you gave me a, a 30% chocolate full of sugar... I'd probably finish the whole thing. Not not now, of course, because it's seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I were to start, it's a slippery slope, and it very quickly you'll start eating them all. So, I, I mean, just fortuitously, I was, I was listening to a podcast this morning on the way to work, which yeah. is quite bizarre that it happened like this. And I don't know if you've heard of the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah, well. Massive, massive podcast in America. And I went back onto historical episodes, and there was one, I've heard the Gary Taubes one, and Dom D'Agostino, and Rhonda Patrick, and there was one this morning with Mark Sisson. Yes. But it was a previous one. And I don't know if you heard it, but no. you must, after this, download it, please, because in it, they talk about you. Oh, right. Joe yeah. Rogan and Mark Sisson, and they talk about you a lot. And I was on Boys Drive, and knowing that I was going to see you today, I almost stopped the car just to listen. But Sisson was saying, and Gary Taubes had said in the previous interview, that 95% of scientists are bad scientists. Mm -hmm. And Rogan asked him why, and he said the reason why is because when confronted with the, tr the truth, they won't actually change. They won't change. Mm -hmm. And Sisson said this morning um, that you had changed and you were a hero to him as a result of that. And Rogan, who's a... I mean, Joe Rogan's a UFC commentator, mm -hmm. ultimate MMA guy, but he's an outstanding interviewer, a very conversational guy. And he really picked at the issue to say, like, surely that's not unusual that scientists change their mind. And Sisson said, uh, you know, when they stick to a position which is normally funded by industry, they do. So I mean, like, how, how, did, you, how did you get into this thing? I mean, it's a long story, mm -hmm. I imagine, but, but I remember, you, you, I've heard it before, but how did, how did you get into it? And, and it must have been a very, very difficult decision to change your mind. Or was it easy? And you well, it's just, easy, actually. Okay. It was easy, but... Uh, but let's go back to the story. So let me just boast for a bit. You know, Please, I'm, I'm yeah. a very, I'm very, <laughs> I never boast. But anyway, I've just come back from London. Yes. And there was a conference there which I spoke. And I got two standing ovations. But the second one went on for about four minutes. And it's, it's never been seen by anyone at a conference before, ever. Oh, no, four, minute, four minutes is a long time. Well, it, it was. The reason we know it was four minutes was because I finished my speech. And I'm from, my parents are from Liverpool. And it, the audience was all the local people who have walked the course alone. You I see, so of course it was never, you'll never walk alone. I and I pl it. and they, they just went ballistic and crying and cheering and so on. That's amazing. It was. And, but all, I got up and said, okay, guys, this is how I made my error and this is why it changed. And the reality is that I start, when I, I went into physiology in 1969, I started medicine, 1970, 
I'd studied physiology. And that was the, almost the very year that the studies came out showing that carbohydrates are what make you run faster, you see. And they were flawed studies. But how, how was I to know? Sure. I'm, I'm one year into medicine. And the professor, I, went, I remember sitting in his office and him showing me these studies. Oh, this is fantastic. You see, eat more carbohydrates, you run faster and better and longer, you see. And they, they were all flawed studies. But, of course, I didn't know that. So when I eventually got into my own research in the 1980s and I wrote the book Law of Running, the first chapters are all about how carbohydrates determine your performance. Sure. And why was that? Because we'd become world, literally world authorities on carbohydrate metabolism in the body. And how that happened? That had happened because Bruce Fordus and myself and a guy called Bernard Rose, a very fine runner, lives in Cape Town now, we developed with a company the product FRN, Fordyce, Rose & Noakes, the Goose. They were the first Goose in the, in the world. world. In the world. Wow. And Bruce was winning comrades, and I was telling him, Bruce, you know, to eat more carbs and so on. And that's a whole other lovely story, which we'll be here all day if I tell you that one. Because he eventually, us, converted, he eventually converted to the Banting yeah, diet. Yeah, and he said, Tim, if you taught me to eat fat in those days, I would have won 15 comrades, not just nine. <laughs> what, were, what, were his, what were his times in those days? He per, ran per five. Well, what would he run at a per K? 330? Yeah, close to that. I mean, he ran 525, I think. 524 was his record. And there's some big hills in comrades. Unbelievable. Yeah. So... So, but I was doing research, and I remember the very first study we did was at the Stellenbosch Marathon, and we, we convinced the guys we did a muscle biopsy the day before the marathon, I mean, and we paid them each 100 rand. And that, we had 10 subjects, I had 1,000 rand, and I was given it in a paper packet by, <laughs> by LEP and FRN. That was the, the first funding we got for a research study, you see. I didn't even think we had a thing called ethics. We didn't have to go through research ethics in those days. Anyway. So then, so then we, we, the product did rather well. So we were getting royalties and we were using that to do research. And once you get into that mode, it's very difficult to change. And I, I mean, Bruce has won the comrades five yeah. times. Carbohydrates did it. Yeah. You know, how are you going to change? So anyway, we go along this long route. And then in 2010, I'm uh, fat and lazy and our running's terrible. How much weight did you put on? I put on about, well, I lost 20. 21 kilos. So, but, but it really happened in the last 10 years. I put on about 20 kilos, but, but it was gradual, like maybe two kilos a year, but you kind of don't really notice it. But my running went, was terrible. And then I wrote the book Waterlogged, which yeah. really exposed me to the way science is manipulated by industry. And so I'd been manipulated, but then, to, to my credit, we had used the funding from another company to develop another sports drink. And we'd actually used it to prove that there was no need for the sports drink. And that, of course, had brought us into conflict, and eventually we lost the sponsorship. But by then, I knew that there was not a great role for carbohydrates ingestion during races. I still okay. believed you needed to eat it before, but, but not during. And so I, I wrote this book, Waterlog, which, which took Gatorade the com and Pepsi-Cola straight on and showed how they'd manipulated the science. And that made me realize how industry is not caring about your health or my health. They just want to sell their products. So Gatorade was the first, was, it, was that the first carb drink in the States? That's correct. And yeah. it was developed in 1965 by Dr. Cade at the University of Florida. So that's okay. why it's called Gators, because they're the Gators, oh, so it was okay. called Gatorade. Oh, I see. And the interesting thing is, you see, and I make this point <clears> in the book, that he used kitchen chemicals, glucose and sugar, sorry, glucose, 
and, and salt. And that, so he could produce this product. It wasn't a drug that had to go through drug trials. And he literally did two or three experiments, which proved nothing. But of course, he claimed they proved everything. And that was then the product it was marketed so brilliantly. And it's always first in dominates the field. So they dominated the field. And then eventually, in about 1986, the, the company was bought out by one of the big companies. And then it went to Pepsi, but it wasn't Pepsi originally. And they decided they're going to make this product a, a global phenomenon. And they did. And they, they, they got up to sales of $2 billion a year, you see, with from nothing, almost nothing. And they did it by, by manipulating the science and manipulating the, the scientists. So anyway, so I'd exposed all this and written the book. And the title of the book was going to be The Search for the Killers of Cynthia Lucero. Now, Cynthia Lucero is a lady who runs the, the Boston Marathon. And she follows the advice that is in an advert in Runner's Magazine. And you can guess who placed the advert there. And yeah. it said, you must drink two, uh, equivalent of 1.2 liters per hour or your performance will suffer. Now, she's a lady of about, we estimate, 60, 55, 60 kilos. The temperature is 10 degrees centigrade. There's a strong wind blowing as cover. There's, there's cloud cover. So there was no heat stress. And she's told to eat 1.2, drink wow. 1.2 liters per hour to prevent heat stroke in a condition where she's more likely to get hypothermia. Yeah. And she gets hyponatremia, blood sodium falls. She's admitted to the best hospital in, in, in America, probably in the world, and she dies. And she didn't have to die. She yeah. So anyway, so that was the, well, anyway, when the book got to the editors, they said, I don't think we'll use that title. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they edited the book down to about 60% of what I'd written. Okay. But the point is, I sent that on the 12th of December, 2010. I emailed it the night to the editors. And I woke up a few hours later and my brain said, you must get up tomorrow morning and you must run and you must run every day for the rest of your life. Because I hadn't been running much because of writing the book. So I went out and I had this dreadful run. It was 5Ks and it was appalling. And the last hill just outside my house is a tiny little hill compared to the comrades' hills I'd run. And I reached the top, and I thought I was the top of Mount Everest, you see. So, <laughs> so only I went home, and then they by chance I opened my emails, and there was an advert for the book, the, the New Atkins for the New You by Just Westman. The next day. Yeah. Oh, that's unbelievable. And, and, and what's the chance of it being there? Yeah. And I was so angry. because so spam, said, spam. It was a spam advert, exactly, okay. which we don't get anymore. Yeah. Because the spam edits it out, but yeah. it, then it didn't. So I was so angry because I knew the authors were really good scientists and they'd sold out to Atkins. And I thought, what have they done? So I got so angry, I got in the car and drove and bought the book. And two and a half hours later, I'd read the first chapter and I said, oh my gosh, I got it wrong. Oh. And that was it. I said, I'm in bad shape. They explained why I'm in bad shape. I'm insulin resistant. I'm pre-diabetic or diabetic. The carbs are causing the problem. I'm going to cut the carbs. And I did. And for seven years, I've been on this journey now. So that's how I changed. And then within six weeks, I just had this huge reversal of all my symptoms. And my running went back 20 years. I went from a 60-year-old to a 40-year-old. Were you pre-diabetic in those? I was frankly diabetic, okay. but I didn't only made the diagnosis about a year later. Because okay. I, I wasn't prepared to do the mm -hmm. testing. I thought, if I go low carbs, that'll cure me. But it didn't. And so then I, and I, but I didn't want to take medication. I certainly was never going to take insulin, because I knew Insulin makes it worse, not better. Okay. So eventually, uh, the diet doctor, Andreas Ianfeld, came yes. to Cape Town. And I said, Andreas, these are my results. What would you do? He said, I'd put you on metformin immediately. So I went on to metformin, that, which is 
What's which that? is it's a it's actually a plant product okay. and it's the safest drug known to man that all drugs have complications and sure. there's a complication with this it lowers your b12 and you have to load up with b12 but otherwise it's safe and there's pretty good evidence that it may improve longevity and so on so i went on the metformin and i've been on metformin for seven years and i've just started reducing the dose uh, because my good glucose control is now so perfect it's i don't want to take it away completely because it'll i don't want my glucose controlled not to be perfect yeah and there's to me there's no risk in continuing on the medication but i've halved my dose so so that was my my story and so it was really easy for me because within six weeks i i felt so much better and now seven years later i've reversed my diabetes and i make this very strong point that my father developed diabetes at my... I'm 68. He also got it at 68, but I've already had it for eight, seven or eight years. Wow. He was dead within 10 years, not from the disease, but from its treatment, because he got the wrong treatment. Now, compare that to me. Seven years of the right treatment, and I've reversed and my disease is in remission. So to me, that's, that's pretty good evidence. That, that I mean, this, I, I heard um, Dom D'Agostino was saying that... Uh, I mean, he's incredibly scientific, and yeah, from what right. I could kind of decipher, he was saying kind of 60 to even 90% of cases of, of, and there's been a few test cases have been, have been reversed, mm -hmm. similar to yours. Yeah. I mean, just following a ketogenic diet. Yeah, well, the Vert, now the Verta Health Company, now, yeah. which I'm glad to say I, had, I was involved indirectly, and that's another story. So we're sitting here in Cape Town, but a few years ago, Donnell O'Neill is an Irishman, international athlete. His father had developed complications eating the grain-based diet and not smoking and not drinking. And he came to Cape Town to find out what could he do to prevent himself getting the same condition because he was an athlete and he wondered, but my dad did everything right. He followed the diet, yet he gets, has a heart attack. Yeah. So we put him on the high-fat diet and he developed a He filmed it and interviewed a whole lot of people in Cape Town and elsewhere and it became known as serial killers. And he showed yes. how he became healthier on the diet, although he was pretty healthy when he started. And that launched him on a career of making these documentaries. And the next documentary he'd made was, made was on the ketogenic diet in athletes. And he went to California. And in, the, in the, the movie, The Serial Killers, he has me tearing out pages oh, out, of, out of the law of running. He shows that guy <clears throat> to a guy called Sami Inkanen. And Sami had trained on the book and become a very good athlete, but also a multi-billionaire from doing other things. And he was looking for a new job. And he said, if Tim Noakes did that, there, there's something in it. And he was asked by Steve Finney, who was the author, one of the authors of that original book, The New Atkins for the New You. Finney came up to him and said, you know, Sami, we've got this company, Verta Health, but we, d we don't have a good CEO. We'd like you to become the CEO. So he becomes the CEO. And their, their goal is to reverse diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. They formed the company, raised lots of money, and they've just reported their first year data. So they took 300 people with type 2 diabetes and through telemedicine, they communicated with these people on a daily basis. Because Sami's genius is to realize that diabetes is a disease of choice. Sure. Yeah. And he said if it's a disease of choice, you can't medicate it and hope that medication is going to reverse it. You have to reverse the behaviors. Sure. But you can't reverse behavior by seeing the patient once a year. You've got to see them every five minutes. Yeah. And so you realize telemedicine is the way you do it. You've got to be that angel on their shoulder. Hey, hey. You know, exactly. Yeah. And that's what they did. Yeah. 
and they've, their, their one-year data came out two months ago showed that 60% of the patients had gone into remission in one year. So the, there's no more debate, you see, that this is the, the low-carb diet or the ketogenic diet is the treatment for type 2 diabetes. And by the similar token, it's the preventive mechanism, me, method for preventing type 2 diabetes. We don't, so we don't even have to bother that. Yeah. So Dom is quite correct in what he says. You could get 60% reversal. So just to kind of take it back to the ground floor for people that yeah. perhaps don't understand the diet. I mean, they've heard Banting, they've heard Ketogenic, they've heard Atkins, um, Moderate Atkins, all this stuff. I mean, for, for your diet, what, what, what is it that you eat? And, and, and uh, do you think that's, that's, that's full ketogenic or is, it, or is it not? No, it's not because I'm... I think for, for many people to be ketogenic, it's actually quite a difficult yeah. diet. And I know for me to be fully ketogenic with ketone bodies of two or three yeah. is actually, it's almost impossible, despite the fact that I'm only eating 25 grams of carbs a day. So a lot of people think that if you go low carbs, that you'll definitely become ketogenic. That's not true. Yeah. And I have to run and do all sorts of extra things and <clears> fast <throat> to get to those levels. And I think that's, that's something you can do after seven or 10 years on a low carb diet. Okay. But to start on that, I'm not convinced that's the way to go. So what do I what do we tell people? We have a green list in our book, The Real yeah. Meal Revolution, but basically it's very simple. It's eggs, fish, meat, dairy, nuts, vegetables, and that's about it. Yeah. What do we not eat? That's the key. We don't eat I don't eat fruit because that's to me is just a sweet. I, I do eat minimal vegetables because I'm beginning to think that that I'm not well adapted to vegetables and I'm more adapted to a highly carnivorous diet. Okay. And I think that it really depends where you come from. And my parents are from Liverpool, as I mentioned. And, and the north of England was under ice for until 5,000 years ago. So, so we had to eat fat animals. That's what we were eating. We didn't oh. have a chance to eat grains and so on. So, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we've got the full answer, but I think that but there is a population of humans who, who will do very well on not eating any any vegetables. Do you, do, you, um, do you eat a similar meal daily? I mean, oh, yeah. Do you reduce your, your, your kind of choices? Yeah, it's I've eggs. Eggs and bacon and avocado okay. and, and meat and, and fish. Okay. That's, that's about it. Yeah. And a snack on nuts and biltong. And, and um, I mean, in terms of, yeah, in, in terms of the ketogenic diet, which is the, what, 90-odd percent fat, I mean, for, for most people, just to stomach that, I imagine would be quite would be quite difficult. So that moderate Atkins, where you kind of seventy five percent fats, yeah. um, and I remember when 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 you first started, there wasn't much in the way of certainly in South African research, but it was more high protein, high fat, mm -hmm. and, and that's become more high fat, moderate protein, yeah, yeah. almost yeah. zero carb. Can you just talk about like how does the protein affect you in terms of insulin and all that? Yeah, that's an interesting area which I'm not I'm not a full authority on, but it it, it appears to me that insulin does cause sorry that protein does cause an insulin response, but it's a different insulin response because you also get glucagon secreted at the same time. Okay. So the hormonal milieu we call that the biochemistry of the body is different when you eat protein versus when you eat carbs, and although the insulin may go up, it's not it doesn't have the same effect as the carbohydrate induced insulin oh, okay. secretion. So that's point one. So it seems to us that the, the, we can kind of ignore that instant effect of protein. But as I'm aging, I think that the older you are, you need more protein to maintain okay. your muscle mass and bones, right. bone strength. 
And I think that avoiding protein is not such a good idea. So right. that's another reason why I'm not so keen on the ketogenic diet okay. at an older age. Okay. I think it may well be important if you have got type 2 diabetes that you can't control. Right. I've no question that the ketogenic diets would be even more helpful. But as you get older, I worry about bone strength and, and muscle strength. And, you know, I've just, I started CrossFit uh, six months ago and oh, I, put sure. on, I put on five kilograms of muscle. Despite the fact that I'm 68, you shouldn't be able to do it. And where is it coming from? Well, it's, I think it's the high fat diet with enough protein. Yeah. And I, I couldn't have done it on a high-carb diet, yeah. I have no question. Yeah, I want to chat muscle stuff when Steve yeah. gets here because it's, it's an important point. It's also like something self-discovery that I've had. I, I was running for a long period of time and doing, doing the Banting diet, and I got, I got super lean, but I'm six foot three, and I got down to 78 kilos, yeah. and I, I felt I was skinny fat. Yeah, um, that's right. that's And right. since I've been kind of going back to the, the strength and conditioning mm. training, um, with with actually reduced cardio, mm-hmm. but eating well, I think from a body composition point of view, it's been much better for me. Yeah. Um, do, do you think, like, uh, speaking of, did you guys make money off the goose? Um, well, we all the money I made went into research. Okay. I mean, you know, they gave us money. Uh, I think Bruce and, and Bernard would be able to tell you that okay. one because they, they had a contract with the organisers. Okay. I, I don't think so. I think they were always complaining. And then eventually the, the name was changed for, for something running, for <laughs> robust, F-R-N, it was for <coughs> robust running or something like that. Okay. Something, or running um, nicely or something, I okay. can't remember. For running nicely. Or yeah. for running nutrition. But anyway, Bernard and Bruce were, were dropped. I continued to do the research. And then they sold it to an overseas company. It was kind of at the time when a when South Africa was really under financial pressure. And oh. I think that was what they really wanted to do was sell the company. Do you think Fordyce would have run better times on... on yeah, absolutely. Really? No question. No question. So, so would, his, would his kind of carbon tolerance have always been there or have started later in life? In, it, it was there. He put wow. on about two kilos. If you look at his body mass, uh, in the 80s when he was winning comfortably, it was, it was about 50 kilos. By the end, it was about 52 kilos. And... When he converted, he just was amazed at the response. How he, running came back very quickly. And, and, I mean, the evidence now is absolutely clear. Yeah. If you're running, even if you're running at his pace, yeah. if you're running five hours, fat's fueling it, so you might, as well, <clears throat> you might as well just eat fat and not try to eat the carbs. And um, so, so for the kind of the, the, my mate, the man on the street, yeah. to, to, to go into a Banting-type diet, would you, would you go in... Slowly, slowly, or would you try and, uh, and depending on the case, I suppose. But if someone's yeah. morbidly obese, you, yeah. you would you would probably try and say, look, you need to cut all your stuff out now and and stop. So, so you just follow the green list on that book, and, yeah. and off you go. Yeah, I think so. Um, I normally I take to athletes and say, listen, cut your to about two hundred grams carbs a day, which is still a lot of carbs, and then reduce it by about 50 grams per month. And so they're still doing 200, you say? Yeah, I think okay. to start with, if you've got yeah. a good athlete yeah. and they want to do I think dropping to 25 or 50 is a bit extreme. Right. And it's rather to go more slowly. But, okay. you know, if you're morbidly obese, you're going to have to be 25 grams. You might as well get there as soon as you like. Because yeah. you're never going to be allowed to eat more than 25 grams. So you might yeah. as well get there as quickly as possible. Dairy? Creams? Double yeah, creams? That's really interesting. There's definitely one a population who are in dairy intolerant. And, okay. 
And we can't detect that until well, you respond. Yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. I mean, you know, one of the one of the ladies who adopted first has died first, and I followed her for seven or eight years, and she's fed back to me. She said she she couldn't lose the final four kilos until she dropped dairy, and then she's back to where she was as a teenager. Okay. And I mean, she religiously followed the Banting diet, but she allowed dairy, and those are kind of those are sort of stories that are really important. Of course, it's an n equal one. Yeah. But the point is, I can't avoid. I can't now say that mm-hmm. everyone can have dairy. I can't because I know she couldn't. Yeah. And she benefited, so I can't say everyone must eat dairy. No, there are going to be individuals for whom it's not helpful. And and they kind of, you know, you you mention these these things to mates and stuff, and you come you you, you people think you're extreme. Um, yeah. And, and they say, okay, just eat five days a week, banting, yeah. and then on the weekend you're good. But the damage you do on the weekend is so significant, I imagine. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, if you're a smoker, you're going to have one, you can smoke one day a week. It doesn't work. You'll yeah. be back. And the problem was those two days put you back two days. So, in fact, so that four days you're eating okay. high carbs and three days you're banting. It doesn't okay. work. It is, it's, people have to understand it's a lifestyle. And yeah. I think the people who want to do that haven't actually benefited. They haven't made the full switch. Yeah. And they don't understand the full benefits yeah. to this. yeah. You know, I mean, we just got so much energy now, and you, you wouldn't want to take that energy away again. Go back to where you were. Yeah. At the conference. Um, so, what was the conference about? And and uh, yeah. and was yours like the culmination speech? Was it highly technical, or was it was it were there fans? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we were preaching to the converted. Okay. It was the. It's a public health collaboration, which is a charity in Britain which promotes dietary change. They're trying to get the dietary guidelines changed. Started by a guy called Sam Feltham, and you, he's a really interesting guy because you can... He did some experiments on himself where he, he ate 5,000 calories a day, and for, for one period it was carbs, and for the other it was fat. And on the carb diet, he put on a huge amount of weight. On the fat, even though eating 5,000 calories, which was much more than he expends daily, he didn't put on much weight. In fact, I think he put on one kilogram or something. That's interesting. Yeah. And so he was just trying to prove that it's not just the calories that are important, it's where the calories come from. Yeah. So anyway, he formed this organization, and they have an annual conference, and they usually get some, some really important speakers. So this year, Asim Malotra was there, and he's, he came to speak to our conference here in Cape Town in 2015. And uh, he's the most vocal person in the United Kingdom about the sugar and the statin drugs and the high-fat diets being healthy. So he spoke. Um, my great friend Peter Bruckner was there. Peter, I converted Peter, and then Peter converted the Australian cricket team. I see, because Shane Watson, That's uh, the one. Warner back in the day, yeah. Warner's got more problems now, but no. <laughs> he, they were both on right. Shane Watson yeah. was the first guy to convert. Okay. And when they were last in Cape Town playing a test match here, and they were in the hotel just around the corner here, the, the Cullinan. Yeah. Peter invited me and he said, I want a book for every player. So I signed the Real Meal Revolution for every player on the wow. Australian team. And the two really paid much attention to him, Mitch Johnson and Shane Watson. Wow. And I spent about two hours with him. And Mitch was this frightening fast bowler. Yeah. He was like putty. He was like a child. Really? He, he was loving it. And I've got a picture on Twitter of the three of us, you see. Because you, know, you can see Watson's, Watson's physique changed. Yeah, I did. And look here, he's just been the, 
he won the MVP in the yeah. in the final of the IPL. Yeah. And he's 36 now, yeah. and he <laughs> scored 117 in 57. So yeah. people ask me, well, he doesn't want to bat for longer because he's got so much energy, yeah. he's just going to get rid of it quickly. Yes, unbelievable. So yeah. he's, still, he's still sticking to it. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the interesting thing was his father had type 2 diabetes. Okay. So he's exactly the same as me. Okay. And Shane told me, he said, I could never control my weight. And I, would start, I would starve before the start of the season, but then during the season he said, you have to eat. So by the end of the season I was fat. I mean, Flintoff's another one. You look at yeah. Flintoff. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's, yeah. he's doing ketogenic or whatever, but, but he, he looks like he's got yeah. dramatically leaner from his brain. Well, the, the Registan Royals, I had a Skype with them. I saw that, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so and two, of, two or three of their guys. Ben Stokes is on their team, and he asked me. He was so funny. He said, tell me, Dr. Noakes, what's this keto acidosis? You see, I said, see, Ben, you know all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he said, yes, he knows all about it. But he looks like he does it. Okay. And Joss Butler was also there. And Joss had a very good IPL as well. And there was one or two Indian players on the team who've lost weight. And they said, it's just made it's a miraculous difference to them. Yeah. I mean, for the man on the street to test it out, how do you know? Because there, there is a percentage of the population that it wouldn't work for. Yeah. Or, or that it's well, certainly there's a percentage of the population that are completely carb tolerant, which yeah. are, I mean, bless them. That's a yeah. wonderful yeah. place to be. But there are people that it wouldn't work for. What, what would you need to look for um, to see if the diet works for you or not? Yeah, I think it, it's important to make a distinction between eating real foods yeah. and eating processed foods. Sure. So we think that anyone who eats real food, that's going to make them healthier. Because yeah. when the processed foods, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. So let's say we put people on a processed food, uh, sorry, real foods. The question is how much vegetables do they eat right. and how much potato, etc. That's the That's determined by by your level of insulin resistance. So if you're insulin tolerant, you can have your potatoes. And I, I'm not sure about bread. I don't think grains are all that healthy. So that's kind of one of the issues I have. There's no evidence that grains make you healthy. But you could eat carrots and potatoes and, mm. and more of those starchy vegetables. Mm. And that would be, to me, a healthy, high-carbohydrate diet. Okay. But eating processed food is out yeah. because it's full of all this other rubbish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just to, um, I want to ask you about the trial and stuff, but from a, a medical perspective, how does inflammation in your body work? Like, because uh, the high carb diet leads to higher inflammation. I mean, I saw pictures of myself, I was shocked. I had, yeah. a, I had an ID printed out and my face was all puffy. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that's like water retention, et cetera, et cetera. That's why when a bigger yeah. guy loses weight quickly, they lose that yeah, water first. Right. Yeah. How does how does the, the body work on inflammation? And then what is um, how do how do fats or ketone bodies how do they handle that? how do they fix that? Yeah, that's an area that I'm not a world authority okay. on. I think one of the areas is what happens in the gut and the microbiome you've got, right? And particularly whether the gut is secure or not. Because if it leaks, then you leak protein into the body, and that sets up an inflammatory response. Okay. So for me, the most obvious explanation for the inflammatory response is that you've got a leaky gut, and that's linked to cereals and grains and other vegetables. Right. Yeah. And that then sets up autoimmune disease. Right. So, so I think, as, I, as we've indicated, we know that this, the high-fat diet cures type 2 diabetes. The next area that we'll start researching is autoimmune disease. And I think that vegetables and cereals and grains set up autoimmune disease by allowing the gut to leak proteins. 
Because remember, you've got these trillions of bacteria with right. all these proteins. Right. And the body's designed to keep them out. And for most people, that, that works. We keep the proteins in the gut, right. and we don't allow them into the bloodstream. As soon as they get in the bloodstream, they recognize as foreign, and then you get an inflammatory response. Okay. So that's, the, that's what I think is the main cause. Okay. But there, there may be other causes. I know that there's inflammation in the, the fat tissue, which may also be a factor. But I haven't quite got my head around that oh. one as yet. Come here, Steve. Why don't you bring the water with you? Because the prof can have some water. Um, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Good. Steve McIntyre. Steve, nice to meet you. Back in yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> with Jake. There you go. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Come grab a chair next to me, Steve. Cheers, sure. Steve. That'll keep us going. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Josh, can we grab a uh, sure. glass? And Steve, this is Josh. We, we'll just carry on. Um, no, no. Uh, we, we, um, let me just introduce you. Steve McIntyre is a strength and conditioning coach and all-around good man. Um, he was, I suppose, your claim to fame is, is the 2007 World Cup, but uh, you've done a lot, a lot since then as well. Um, Tim and I were just talking about the diet and stuff, so um, I thought I'd just bring you in on, on, on that as well because. Stephen, I've got anecdotal experience with, it, with a mate of ours, but I just wanted to go on to the, onto the trial. Um, from from your side, how's yep. the... This is sparkling, so it'll help you with your fast. <laughs> uh, the, the trial, how did that all come about? I mean... Oh, right, yeah. You, know, you, you, have, you have won it, and there's still, they still appeal, and there was still just yesterday stuff on Twitter all about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I suppose where, where is it now? How did it start? Well, today is meant to be the. This is the third month that they're meant to have given us the final ruling. They were meant to give it end of March, end of April, end of May, and they still haven't. And they won't today. That's my prediction. And they're hoping it'll just go away because. So we we won the the case ten zero, and we then presented to their committee so that they appealed their own decision by their own committee. So they formed another committee. But recall that the, the trial went over 25 days, generated an enormous amount of information. Then we had a three-day appeal process. Now, you can't expect a committee to understand the case as well as the, the, the original group did, who'd exposed to it for 25 days. And those people then are meant to make a new ruling. But we added a few other things. We, we asked for costs, and we also asked, because it's a malicious prosecution, it's absolutely clear that this was... This was, and this was set up by the Association of Dietitians of South Africa. They set it up. They worked with the Health Professional really? Council sure. to shut me up. Before anyone, anyone tweeted anything, mm. there had already been this was happening behind the scenes. And, and we, some cardiologists behind the scenes, I remember back in the yeah, day, they were right. upset about the Banting diet. And well, they, they worried because patients have stopped taking their statin statins. drugs. Yeah. 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 So, so what we discovered was that... When we wrote The Real Meal Revolution, that changed dietetics in this country forever because people who lost weight on this diet were going to the dietitian and saying, but I've lost weight eating fat, and you told me I couldn't. You told me I'd get, on, get fat eating fat and I'd have heart attacks. My diabetes is improving. And the dietitians had, not, had no answer. And the public started complaining and making public statements about how bad the dietitians were. Now, the only way they could change that was to expose me as some sort of fraud quack and that the diet was dangerous. So the head of ADSA, Yul Sinclair, Yul Sinclair, 
goes to the person who is on the Health Professional Council board, the dietitian on the board, five days before I sent that tweet that was became the contentious one. And she says to her, we've got a problem with Tim Noakes. The public is, is blaming the dietitians, and we have to essentially shut Noakes up. What can you do? What can the HPCSA do for us? Because we can't do it alone. So then five days later, I send this tweet, and within nine hours, I've been reported to the Health Professional Council. Oh, really? Yeah. And then there is further communication between Yelsing Stratum and Wenzel Fulhun, who's the lady on the HPCSA board. And she writes back to Yelsing Stratum and says, the board has a plan for Noakes, but I can't tell you what it is. This is before I'm charged. Now, the Health Professional Council is meant to be the ombudsman. Oh, we've got a complaint. You say this. He says that. Well, let's get together and discuss it and debate it. They never did that. They were out to get me. So what next happens, but we don't have evidence for this because we couldn't get the emails. Wenzel Fulhun, in my opinion, and this is, I allege this, I can't prove it, I believe she was in con contact with the seven people who were the preliminary committee which had to decide whether to charge me or not. Now, on that committee, it was headed by the head of ethics from Wits University, Dr. Amabu Dai. And she, head of ethics, broke all ethical rules. She did not allow me to present before the, her committee. And a year later, she was still involved with the prosecution's team, telling them what to do to prosecute me. She's not allowed to do that. Sure. Once you make a decision, that's it. You've got to yeah. butt out. And the prosecution lawyer, even Talde, said, you will destroy this case if you don't get lost. So the seven people never gave me a hearing, and so I never had a chance to defend myself. Yeah. And that is against the Constitution of South Africa. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, the trial went on two years, eh? Yeah, well, three years, three, yeah. Three years, years, yeah. yeah. 20, 26 days. I was in, I was in the, the chair for nine days giving evidence, three and a half days cross-examination. Now, a lot of people say, but there's no evidence for the low-carb diet. Well, I presented for five and a half days Splendid. on the evidence, and there was only one tiny error I made. Otherwise, they could not contest anything. We had Nina Teichold here, we had Zoe Horkom here, and we had Karen Zinn. And they also presented for three days. They were cross-examined each for about half a day. They, nothing could be turned over. So, so we presented the evidence in a way it's never been presented in the, in the history of science. Yes. And, and so they lost with costs? No, they didn't, you see, because oh. there's no costs. But, oh. but when, we, when the appeal came around, we, we appealed for costs because it was a malicious prosecution. Because okay. we proved that the case was never about the tweet. It was about Noakes damaging the, the image of the dietitians, which I didn't do. And do you think behind that there's big corporate money? or Absolutely, really? absolutely. Well, the International Life Sciences Institute, which is a front for Coca-Cola, Two of, their two of their former presidents of the South African chapter were key expert witnesses. The first expert witness, Esti Foster, has links to South African Sugar, to Nestle, and to Ilse. And also to the Seventh-day Adventists. We mustn't forget the Seventh-day Adventists are very strong in promoting an anti-meat diet. All right. yeah. So they're also involved. Yes. 
great story, Paul. I mean, it's, where does it leave the sort of the dietetics industry right now yeah. in South Africa? Because I mean, it's it's people are getting to a point where they're seeing, okay, well, there's actually the evidence. Yeah. yeah. And I know for myself, actually, just working with clients and individuals and just applying the principles, even you don't have to understand the science, yeah. you don't yeah. have to have done the research. You just see it. But when you see the result, yeah. something's going on. <laughs> you know, I've, I'm recently just working with a guy at the moment um, that we changed absolutely nothing except what he put in his mouth. Yeah. And he'd been coming to me for quite a few number of years, been battling to get weight off, etc., etc. And um, in a lot, he lost almost nine kilos yeah. in the last sort of, you know, yeah. grand month. Yeah, it's been quick. Yeah. And he's just like every time he gets in the scale, he just his jaw drops over, and he's a you know in his sixties. He's yeah, not like so. a, an athlete. Yeah. yeah, and it's that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what's how do universities approach this conundrum now? Like basically saying, well, do we alter our course? Do we all like? I mean, it's, it, the implications are actually quite yeah. simple. And that, in a sense, is why they're not they're not reporting the final outcome, because yeah. then the ripple effect. Yeah, is so huge. exactly. The potential yeah. is so huge for things to change. We took up this, the cudgels in part to protect my legacy because I was completely undermined by my university. My university excommunicated me, said they're no longer associated with UCT. me. Yeah. Gee, yeah. Because you were, I mean, you were, you were proper in UCT. Yeah, right? no, yeah. I, built, I built up the whole of sports science, science at, at yeah, UCT. You, you turned the first uh, yeah, that, soil you with saw water. The soil. That's correct, yes. Jeez, like, that's, no, they excommunicated me. And, and that was industry pressure. We don't know which industries are involved, but just, but universities are completely controlled by industry, and yeah. and the medical school worse than anyone, and I think that was the screws were brought on the the university to shut me up. Doesn't doesn't Pepsi control the diet the diabetics industry absolutely. in the states? They control the dietitians. That's yeah, the dietitians are absolutely dependent on funding from all the junk food industries, Super. and so they and the the diet so that's the problem. The dietitians yeah. have to decide. Do we get rid of our funders and really teach people? But the problem is, you see, dietetics comes out of home economics. And what is taught at the schools of dietetics is no different from what is taught at home economics. And you'd think at 50 years, things should change. I mean, one of the wonderful points were during the trial was Esty Forster, who drew up the Safing and Dietary Guidelines. And anyway, when she arrived on the stand and she presented her evidence, Rocky Ramdas, who from Peter Maritzburg, who was just my brother, and we just we just completely bonded. So he says, "So tell me, Professor Forster, what's your undergraduate degree in? In home economics, okay? So what's your PhD in? It's physiology." So she says, "So what about dietetics? Have you ever prescribed a diet in your life? No, I've never prescribed a diet in my life. You see. So tell me, you've spoke spoke about ethics. You said Dr. Noakes on Twitter broke ethics. What do you know about ethics? What training have you got? No, I don't have any training in ethics. So tell me, uh, Professor Forster, you're active on Twitter, are you? No, no, I'm not active. Do do you know anything about Twitter? Yeah, I read Wikipedia about Twitter. No, Yeah. So then then he said, so tell me about this low-carbohydrate diet. You've obviously done lots of research on the low-carbohydrate. No, I've never done any research on that. So he said to her, why are you here? What are you doing? But, the, but more interestingly, then he said, he got her to go through the 2003 South African Dietary Guidelines. You see? So she goes through and tells us this is what it says. And then he says, now let's go through the 2013 guidelines. And they're exactly the same, except something for alcohol. Alcohol 
in 2003, there's some sort of statement about alcohol, maybe not so great, you see. But now it's great. 2013 is great. So he says, now, did anything change in South Africa between 2003 and 2013? I mean, did obesity rights change? Oh, yes, we've got this obesity epidemic. Tell me, did diabetes change? Yeah, we've got this diabetes. So, so but, but the guidelines don't say anything about that. Same, same. They didn't, they didn't address that. Why is that? And I mean, are there similar trials? I mean, you, you've gone against the grain, so to speak, in South Africa and, and are converting more and more people just by common sense. Are there, are there people like you in the States? I mean, there, there are the Dom D'Agostinos, there all these Rhonda Patricks, et cetera, yeah. who are very, very vocal. But are they being challenged by industry or not? Oh, yeah, they are. Okay. Um, my great friend Gary Fetke in Australia is an orthopedic surgeon. He's the only guy in Tasmania who will do amputations because he's an orthopedic surgeon. And he was telling his patients, you mustn't eat sugar if you've got diabetes, you know, if you want to save your limbs. And he was shut up and told that he may never, ever prescribe a diet for anyone of his patients. You know, and they said, even if you're right, you can't speak to them. Okay. So he got shut up. And there's another doctor, Sean Baker, Sean Baker, I think it is, in, in the United States, who, who lost his job as an orthopedic surgeon because he was referring patients or telling them what to eat. And the hospital, they were getting better, so the hospital, they weren't operating as much and so on. So the, there are odd patients, and there's another dietitian in Australia who lost her right to practice. Yeah, but there, there are a few of them yeah, around the world. I mean, just, just, just in terms of practicality around the diet, what's, what, what causes, because um, with high-carbohydrate diets, one of the things is everyone wants to have an afternoon nap. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's always the thing when you, when you go on holiday and you have a big lunch, everyone wants to sleep yeah. afterwards. But if you have a big ketogenic lunch, there's no crash at all. You feel mm. completely yeah. fired up and energetic and we must only get onto fasting now. What, what's the cause of that? What, what, what's happening there? Is your body just more efficient at burning fat so it's not sleeping? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's the insulin response. And it's not really, you know, people say your glucose drops, but very few people actually drop their glucose with insulin. I think it's just all the hormones in the brain that are changing, the chemicals in the brain that are okay. changing. Okay. And the, the post, when you eat carbs and you secrete insulin plus a few other things, they must modify the brain and just make you a bit sleepy. Yeah, I think it's one of the probably the most sort of misunderstood or misrepresentative or one of the issues that guys don't understand is the hormonal response to food mm-hmm. you know what's actually going hormonally yeah, on in the body yeah, it's, right. it's not just a calories in calories out yeah, equation it's not just about deficit and I think uh, from that point of view I tend to agree with you that there's definitely a hormonal response there's an insulin factor that's causing this sort of Machi or these two sort of scenarios yeah. where you, if you yeah. eat, you feel lethargic and you sleep, but uh, it's, it yeah. makes complete sense to me. We, we've seen now with um, <clears throat> with a mate of ours, and maybe we must just kind of talk about the fasting. There's yeah. this guy on Instagram called Cole Robinson. Robinson. He's, he's absolutely insane. He's off the charts crazy the way he speaks to the camera. He swears, he goes crazy, but he is, he's saying, <laughs> His approach is if you're fat, you've got to, you've got to fast. Mm. Fast yourself. You're sitting with all... If you yeah. want to look at your lunch, there's your, there's your lunch. <laughs> and you food. Fat is food. And you fast until you're thin. Yeah. And um, we've got a mate of ours, the, the guy that you met, Wayne. Yeah. And after, after we met you, for two weeks, he was fired. Yeah. And he went back into his old ways. And we realized with him it was an accountability thing. Mm. He, he responds really well to being held to account by us. We formed a little group, me, Stephen, and another guy. And uh, 
had a bit of an intervention with him and we said to him, okay, cool, we're going to help you to lose weight. He's now, he went from 138, he's now 120. Um, and we're not going to stop until he's like 85, mm. but he's, he's really fired up by it, but he's been doing kind of more of the fasting, the fasting side and then now just this month he wants to, he's, he's really dropped his carbs um, to go on the ketogenic side. So maybe just chat like how you found the fasting, because Steve is already lean, but he got super lean on the, on the fasting side. Yeah, I, I just found it fascinating, and I think I'm a big believer in, in sort of really self-experimentation is very powerful, because then that feedback that you're getting, I've always been physically active, trained, I've always been involved in strength training as a, as a, as a profession and myself, um, but I've, I've never really kind of change much in the diet from what you kind of always did mm. it's one of those scenarios you have your breakfast and you have your carbohydrates mm. and good old sort of dietary guidelines or the x amount of you know carbohydrates per day etc and then i started sort of getting more in, interested in, in in hearing about and obviously following the story with the banting and, and and sort of trying to get a deeper understanding through, through practical experience so i started fasting myself research intermittent fasting um, and started removing breakfast out of my schedule um, diminishing refined carbohydrates and then just sort of seeing what happened. So in a nutshell, in a quite a short space of time, I was weighing about 85 kilograms. It didn't change anything except it created sort of fasting windows. I started off in a sort of that 16, 8 to 18, sort mm-hmm. of six period of kind of pushing my meals out to for those kind of windows. And I just saw my body start to change mm-hmm. uh, incredibly fast mm-hmm. uh, and incredibly aggressively. So I went dropped down to 77 kilos sure. so as from 85 to 77. Yeah. But I, I maintained quite most of my muscle actually, mm-hmm. and I got incredibly lean. And I'm 44, mm-hmm. um, and it was quite fascinating for me to see how powerful that intervention was. I was quite disciplined with it, mm-hmm. um, and and how, how I felt. And I think that was the combination of the realizing that there's there's, there's a lot going on in the body um, and the power of what you're putting in your mouth mm, to mm, address mm, the body and how the body responds to it favorably. Mm, mm, Aesthetically and how it looks, how it, how it starts to remove unnecessary weight, um, how you felt cognitively, really felt sharp, that, that sort of post-lunch long yeah. used to disappear. I often used to feel sort of after one or two o'clock clients would come to train I'd think okay I would push through these couple of sessions yeah. the next thing it's five o'clock in the evening I haven't yeah. eaten I'm yeah. feeling great um, and then really realizing that they you know getting a bit more into reading about it and understanding that there is there's definitely something going on mm-hmm. um, so then starting to work with guys that had weight issues and said listen I found this in myself try this and just simple mechanisms of, of, of creating those windows making better choices and we weren't counting calories, mm-hmm. we weren't weighing food, simple mechanisms like that, and seeing people's lives started to change mm-hmm. was quite fascinating. So the, from, from a practical experience, I mean, even if I hadn't read a single piece of research, you do something and you get that result, something's going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And it deserves further And especially if you, yeah. you know, it's your career, you've, you've observed people yeah. for decades and you've never seen this before no no yeah. for sure so I mean it's it's. I, I just think you know and I know that sort of intermittent fasting is becoming more and more mainstream mm-hmm. now when you look mm-hmm. at what's going on the information that's on the internet and the research that's going on I still think there's probably a lot more we're still going to find yeah, out sure, sure. I think we still it's definitely sort of almost like a tip of the iceberg especially when it's linked to, to low carb because you can't really fast unless you go low yeah, carb. Yeah, no, you can't. Be- because you, you you don't really get hungry once you once you drop your carbs, yeah. the fat keeps you full. But if you're on a high carb diet and you're trying to you're trying to you're trying to drop that meal, 
Yes, yeah, so you're getting starving yeah. at like, mm. you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, you, you're ready to eat a table. And again, yeah. I suppose the question is why? And again, it must be hormonally, insulin. Yeah, needs. exactly. I mean, exactly. this appetite, yeah. cravings, etc. Uh, what fascinated me was so, you know, getting back to a guy like Cole, he gets amazing results. Very, is highly extreme. Very, very extreme. Mm-hmm. I mean, where, where the, the line comes between, you know, getting a result and still putting someone in medical jeopardy or something, I suppose that's, that's yeah. for a discussion on its mm-hmm. own. Um, but I try one or two longer fasts to see how I felt. So 24 hours, and, and I've done a, four, a couple of 48 hours as well. And what was fascinating to me, and then using the keto strips to actually see yeah. when I was actually, yeah. actually going into ketosis, the longer I, I practice fasting, the earlier I would get into ketosis. Is that so? Uh, yeah, no, so I was obviously getting more fat adapted yeah. and, and, and shifting over. So the first time I tried a 48-hour fast, I actually, because I actually based it on this whole protocol of fasting forced ketosis, that yeah. if you actually yeah. deny your body calories for long enough, it's going to have to find energy somewhere else and start, starts metabolizing and you get into the photosystem and, and you start using producing ketones. But was there actually the lack of hunger? So yeah. there was that initial period, and then I'd wake up on the second day and I wasn't hungry at all. And yeah. I get to lunch, I'm still not hungry. I found that fascinating. I thought that has to be hormonally controlled. The brain is now getting a certain way; it's getting internally satisfied with yeah. energy. Yeah. So I mean, have you had much experience with longer fasting? Fasting? No, I've only I've only really gone twenty four hours, and that's yeah, all usually yeah. by not by design. It just happens. Yeah, and it's yeah. been easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And those would be, that would typically happen when I give them lecture in the morning, lunch in the afternoon or something, right. and haven't had a chance to eat, and then yeah. it's fine. And yeah. and after seven years, would you be would you would your body now be burning ketones as energy, or is it? What, what's oh gosh, that happens within the day or two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but I'm saying ketones are you you burn them in proportion to your blood levels. So the more the higher the blood levels, the more ketones will be used throughout the body. What's your view on exogenous ketones? Well, it's really interesting because I, I know Brianna Stubbs and she did a PhD on this. So she worked at Oxford. Oxford were the first to produce the ketone esters rather yeah. than the ketone salts. And the ketone esters are incredibly powerful. So she, when I was in San Francisco, she gave me a little thimble full of them. And I measured my glucose and my ketones. And so within about 30 minutes, my ketones went from 0.4 to 3. Oh, so they were already sitting at 0.4? Yeah, that, okay. I, that's, I kind of, I'm always 0.4 okay. unless I've run a lot and so okay. It went up to 3 within wow. 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah, and I mean wow. that, and my glucose dropped a millimole, when, which is a huge drop. And it's, did you feel good? Yeah, I felt fine. I was traveling, so of course I yeah. couldn't really judge it. Mm. But I mean, there's a huge metabolic effect. Yeah. Because this is independent of being carbohydrate depleted or anything. Yeah. So I think that there's a role for them as a medicine. So this is a little product here that, that, that a mate of ours was, is bringing into South Africa. It's the Prove-It product, the Keto yeah. the, the keto OS product, which is the Keto salts yeah. rather than the, the, the esters, MCT yeah. oil rather yeah. than the esters. Um, and you know, my, my questions around this, I mean, I, I've tried it and you can definitely feel there's something there, but I don't know if that's the caffeine that's kind of making yeah, you yeah. wired up. Um, but... If you're taking in exogenous ketones, are you not just peeing them out? Um, and that's why... Well, no, I mean... Be, how, what does your body do with the, the... The body just responds to what's in the bloodstream. Okay. So if the ketones are 0.4 or 3, if they're 3, you will burn them in the heart and the brain and the, the, the muscles will burn them as a fuel. Okay. Until they'll, they've gone. And they'll pick them first. 
rather you, than another source of energy. Well, you'll balance it up. What's the highest concentration? So glucose is there at point five, uh, sorry, 5 millimoles, so that'll still be a, a preferred fuel. But okay. at 3 millimoles, that's a, that will be also used. Oh, okay. And you remember you've got your circulating fat as well, so there's plenty to, to choose from. And that's part of the problem is that you're just adding in another fuel in a system that's already got too much fuel anyway. Yeah. So that's where I don't understand how they would help performance unless they act in the brain. Yeah. And they may well act in the brain. Yeah. So, yeah. so anything that, that aids performance acutely is acting in the brain. And, and Brianna showed that it does have an effect. Your performance does go up if you take external ketones. But it can't be because you need fuel. It's is, because it, is it that central governor? Yeah, it's the central key? governor. Just theory. explain that because I was fascinated. Yeah. So when I started in the exercise sciences, we were taught that you get tired because your muscles produce too much lactic acid and the heart can't pump enough oxygen and so on. And, and we realize that's rubbish. It's, the brain regulates your performance to make sure you finish and you're safe at the finish line. And that's, the brain's there to make sure you're a survivor. And so that's what the central governor model is, that the brain anticipates what you've got to do, and then it sets out, it sets your pacing strategy, and that pacing strategy is to make sure you get to the finish in one piece. But that pacing strategy can be altered depending on the environmental conditions and your mental state. And so we've shown the mental state is terribly important. So, so your brain then has to tell your brain to back off your muscles. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, do you know what your... Have you heard this thing, your Kipchoge number? Have you heard it? Yeah, I know. So have you heard it? No, I haven't. Uh, that Kipchoge number where you... <clears throat> he's the guy that ran two, two hours, uh, 25 20, seconds for, yeah, the, yeah. for the marathon. Right. I think he was running behind a Nike yeah, truck right, and whatever, right. whatever. And uh, the speed um, the speed he was running at was the same. It was two something... Under three minutes a K. was the same as if you put the treadmill on 21 and you get on with you try and run. And your Kipchoge number is you jump on the treadmill at how 21. How long can you last? And how long can you last? <laughs> um, and a guy like, uh, I mean, a guy like that, his central governor must just be absolutely insane because he yeah. is, uh, he's on the limit for 42.2 Yeah, days. that's right. That's right. But he still couldn't make it. And the 21 seconds, Yeah. that, that was really interesting. And the reason he didn't make it because he wasn't born to believe he could do it. He was born in a culture which said you just have to break 202 to be the champion. So and that, he, that governed him his belief. Yeah, that. exactly right. So he's, yeah. had he been born and it was 201, he probably could have made it. But the sure. jump was too big. Do you think they'll break it? Y- yeah. But again, under those artificial conditions. Okay. But it'll still take a few years. But if you, by the natural sequence, it'll probably take 20 or 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Tim was saying that he reckons Bruce Fordyce, because they, they're close, and, and he reckons Bruce would have run better comrades' times had he been panting. Yeah, that's that's hectic. I mean, you know, he was running three, three, twenty-five, yeah. three hundred k yeah. for eighty-eight k's. Yeah, I, I, I frankly don't see why not. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I mean, a phenomenal statement, but mm. at the five we'll be talking about yeah. in terms of performance. Yeah, and Bruce. I mean, Bruce said it to me. It's not. not I didn't ask yeah. him. He yeah. said it to me. Yeah. And and um, so I've got to live with that, you see, because I made him a carb athlete. <laughs> <laughs> so, Look, you did one of that, right? Yeah, so exactly. And like Steve, strength and conditioning since the World Cup, like has it changed much, or is it the same? You go in bench press, more no. scientific now. More yeah, now? absolutely. I, I think that is the, the probably the key change is the is the way that technology has developed. 
which is a lot of far more detailed, accurate intervention, mm. uh, specifically mm. on, on monitoring of players, understanding training load. And I mean, for example, GPS, I think it's only come in since 2010, mm. GPS monitoring of athletes and players. I mean, now with the GPS, you can pick up pretty much everything, total distance run, time spent in certain heart rate zones, uh, impacts, change of directions. So it helps you create lots of accurate baselines for you know, what's going on and what are the demands of a test match scientifically. This is how many a flank is going to be at, at running at over 15 kilometers an hour for X amount of meters. He's expected that he's going to reach top speed seven times in a game, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you're designing conditioning interventions and training programs, you've got a very accurate guideline just from one mechanism to, mm-hmm. to really get much more detailed uh, in terms of your intervention. So technology is, I'm sure it's in every industry, but definitely from a strength and conditioning point of view, that's made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, monitoring players now is, is a science. So back 10, 12 years ago, a lot of our, our management of players is subjective. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Fill out your questionnaire. How many hours sleep did you get? <coughs> now we're getting due to the technology, the guys are getting access to objective data from everything from saliva tests to looking at testosterone and cortisol relationships for recovery, um, heart rate variability that you cannot uh, look at with, with apps to see how the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is, is, is balancing and, and helping players to recover. That we never had access to before. Mm. You know, um, so a guy can come in, he can be a strong-minded athlete and say, no, I'm feeling great, you run a few tests with him and you can actually put him from training sessions get much more data in. So for me, I think that's the that's the biggest thing. I think the danger for that is that you don't over sort of analyze sometimes. And I think, you know, I think really good coaches still get the balance between mm-hmm. sort of the, the art of training and the science of training. And, you know, you see some of these trainers that they just spend their life yeah, looking right. at their iPads and their apps and they're not actually watching the form of connecting with the individual and the mind. Um, because I think sometimes when you start to understand your athlete, sometimes even if the data is telling you one thing, some some athletes have an ability to still perform even though, um, and that 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 the real good coaches really get to understand. Yeah, so yeah. I think for me, when I look at the good coaches that I've worked with, um, they've always utilised all the science that's been available to them, but they've acquired more sort of the intangible side mm-hmm. of the coaching. They, when when you can still create real relationships with your players, care about them as people, and understand their characters, and you can combine that and map that into the way you deal with that athlete in a team environment, then you start to get something quite special. Who's the best in the world now dealing with that? Would it be like NFL NFL teams, or like who's the most professional out there? Yeah. Probably Manchester City or yeah. Manchester United. My, my son-in-law, John Dobson, who coaches province, okay. yes. he went to Manchester City, he said, you just blows your mind. Really? Just, said it's just, yeah. well, they've just developed their own new facilities and so on. Because yeah. anyway. they have no money re- restore issues. I think in America, I've always thought American football is yeah. an amazing example. And actually when John Dobson started coaching, I gave him a, the manual uh, from Bill Walsh. And Bill Walsh was the guy who sort of uh, developed the San Francisco 49ers and caused the genius. And he's got a long book. But it, it, Steve absolutely correct. Ultimately, it's how you manage the paper the patient or the individuals. That's that's what makes a difference. And um, when when the guy from Manchester United, Alex Ferguson, retired, you just you just see what his what his yeah. players said. They said he was the best because he understood us, you know, yeah. that, that he really understood us. Yeah. You know? And sometimes he would come in and just say, 
he would not even give them a talk because he knew it was it was unimportant. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree. And I actually think going forward, you know, it's one of these scenarios where everybody now has access to the technology. Mm-hmm. So it's like if I had a cell phone, but you didn't have a cell phone, yeah. I've got an advantage over yeah. you in terms of yeah. my business yeah. to communicate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you've got the same scientific technology yeah. as I have, and so do you, and yeah. we work with a team, then if those skills don't become the factors exactly. of performance. Then it becomes these other yeah, sort of intangible yeah. things of your people management skills dealing with a person on a character level, um, connecting, and all the successful teams, as I mentioned, that side was very strong. I still remember in 2007 when you came and spoke to us and yeah, you spoke right. about sort of the, the you know, the, the power of the mind and, and believing that you're going yeah, to win the World yeah, Cup and yeah. actually really believing that. Yeah. So not just, are we going to try or are we prepared? 100% in your mind believing, and that was actually the most powerful thing you could almost take to the World Cup. Yeah, that's right. Um, if that result in your mind was already there, and that it'll allow you to enjoy the process and the, the mind almost takes over in yeah, terms of how it yeah, controls yeah, those things. I think. Yeah. So what I'm, I think the point I'm trying to make is, is that the more scientific we get, almost the more important those other factors become in terms of success. And those sides that ultimately in the coming years are going to come mm-hmm. out on the top are going to be those coaches that understand that mm-hmm. space intimately mm-hmm. and can create those things mm-hmm. within their squads. Can you apply that to real life? Can you apply your... your um it's not a power of positive thinking. It's it's more than that. It's like visualization, and I mean, can you apply that to a, a non a non sporting event? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I'll give you an example. So I give this talk, Steve, about self belief, and one of the the guys who was wanting to become a deputy vice chancellor at the University of Cape Town heard it, and he went in for an interview, and he said, "I just followed you exactly what you said." So when I went in the interview, he said, "He said, well." To himself, he said, well, I'm going to get the job. There's no problem. I've just got to answer these questions. And he said he answered it, and, that, and of course, he got on. He won it. So that, that's what I think. You have to see the outcome before you start. So it's a, it's a visualization thing. It's, it's, yeah, and it, you know, belief is so important. I was last night with Bram Malherbe, who's just rode across the Atlantic. And the I mean, could have sponsored Bram. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's and right. I mean, he should never have made it. It was just. And Chris Burtish, the same on that SUP across the Atlantic. He, he definitely should never have made it. Yeah. And Brahm says last night, it was always the why. That's the, you just have to have the why. Why are you here? Mm. And when we talk to f- teams, that's, we say, why are you doing it? And, and, and ultimately, as Steve will appreciate, you need intelligent players as well. The more intelligent they are, the problem with intelligent players is that you have to convince them about the why. Mm. But then you can take them to a much higher level because if they buy in, then you're in, in business. Uh, are there athletes that <clears throat> that you've been, or are there athletes that we would know that are that are banting and it's been, been improvement? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, every day. They, really? And but a lot of them won't acknowledge it. So the guy who won the Ironman this year, um, he he we converted him a year ago, and he came fourth the first time, but this year he won the South African Ironman and he just. Just amazing. What what really interests me was when I spoke to him for a year ago. I said, "What are you eating? That's Coke and chips and sweets." Because I'm, you know, I'm spending all this energy, mm. you know, I've got to get all these calories in. Mm. And his name's Kyle Buckingham. I'm not always so. So Kyle, and uh, I said, "But but how can you eat this rubbish?" Yeah. You know, and hope to perform. Anyway, he converted, and he won, and he beat all these other guys who come from all over the world. Jeez. David Pocock is probably the best rugby player I know who's converted. And a number of the, Aust- uh, the New Zealanders, the Franks brothers, are both 
absolutely ketogenic. And they became much bigger and yeah. stronger. Because that's always been one of the debates is that yeah. ketogenic is better for an endurance-based athletes, yeah. but yeah. for the explosive yeah. ostrich yeah. fibers, they're saying you're needing the glucose. Yeah. That's not the case. No. Cameron Vandenberg, there's a classic example. He sprints 50 meters yeah. or 100 meters. He's on the start. Really? Uh, and he said it's been amazing. He's also done other things as well, but, but the ketogenic diet was critical for him. Because he, he, he happens to be gluten intolerant. And he would find that by the end of the day, trying to sw- swim in the afternoon, he had a gut full of gas and everything, mm. couldn't train. Yeah. So that's why he went gluten-free, and then he noticed changes. And then he went ketogenic. Yeah. Okay. I mean, especially with Pok- like, like a guy like David Pokoff, yeah. um, he looks like an NFL player. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, 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 he's an absolute freak-looking athlete, yeah. and he's very, very explosive. Yeah, so, exactly. And it worked for him. And he, what he... He converted it. It was so funny because David Pocock, I will never forgive him for knocking us out of the 2011 <laughs> Rugby World yeah. Cup, you see. And I remember I was asked to make a comment about 10 minutes after that game was finished, and I'm not the world's most knowledgeable. But I said, how can a rugby referee decide the outcome of a game yeah. as the referee decided that game? Yes. And so I was so angry. And I swear if David Pocock had arrived, I would have shot his brains out <laughs> right there and then. <laughs> So about three years later, in about 2014, I would guess, on Twitter, David Pocock says, you must follow Tim Nax. So I thought, thought, what the hell's going on here? So I messaged him and I said, David, I forgive you everything and I've got a letter coming. So I sent him a letter and I told him the whole story. But I hated him. And And he said, you know, Tim, this is the story. All I wanted to do ever in my life was play rugby for the Springboks. Because he was born in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And then he, they lost their farm, as far as I can gather, and he went to Australia. And he openly said, he said when he went to Australia, he had an eating disorder, and he had a complete fat phobia. He would not eat fat. So he was a complete carbo junkie. And then eventually, and he, we saw he was Captain Australia eating high-carb diet. And then he eventually read the Banting book, The Real Meal Revolution, and he decided to change and he said, I put on two kilograms of muscle and I lost a couple of kilograms of fat. And he said, my performance went up. It didn't go down, it went up. Yeah. But he does eat carbs. He eats about 150 grams a day before and he has 150 grams for breakfast on the day of a test match. That's quite interesting because I, I was listening to Rob Wolf the other day yeah. and, and Rob's more paleo than banting. And, you know, all, but he was saying that um, he, he eats small, uh, low carbs, like under yeah. 50 grams a day. But he has to up his carbs to around 100, 125. He's quite into jiu-jitsu, and on a very hard jiu-jitsu training session, he'll take before and after. Um, but, I mean, there's a guy who's super lean, yeah. Um, yeah. and he's been eating that way for years and years and years. Well, and it's interesting because we're currently studying what happens if you're fat-adapted and you eat carbs, and it's completely different. Oh, wow. If you're carb-adapted and you eat carbs, it's a totally different response. So if you're carb-adapted and you eat carbs, you shoot your insulin immediately, you take them in. If you're fat adapted, you don't. You just store it. I mean, it goes straight into your muscle. And you store it, so it's exactly where you want it to be. Okay. So then now you go and use it during exercise. So that being fat adapted and eating the carbs, it's completely different. It doesn't convert you back into be, okay. to be not fat adapted. And it, it all you're just topping up your glycogen, yeah. which is exactly what... And you only need 150 grams or so. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. Um, okay, there's, a, there's a couple of... Rugby guys that you're in contact with, I mean, Steve's got quite a mm. big Instagram following, and, and there's a couple of rugby guys that, that are fasting and banting. 
uh, that you're in contact with, and they, I mean, they look properly athletic, mm-hmm. uh, lean, yeah. explosive. Yeah, they are. I mean, back and forth, a couple of them stay connected. Um, the interesting thing for me is was always that question, because a lot of guys said, there's no way you're going to be able to play professional rugby with that kind of diet. There's yeah. no way. So yeah. the guys are proving that, in fact, they are. They yeah. look good. I know yeah. Paul Dodan in France is, is really into his keto. Yeah, that's right. Um, amazing shape. He's obviously an athlete. But so I suppose the, the throwback question that comes is, well, but that's a certain kind of body type. That's a classic mesomorphic professional mm. athlete strength training. But what about someone who's more, who's more sedentary, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old? Is this a kind of a, a one diet fits all? Can ever, will everyone benefit from this? Or is there some guys, I, I can eat carbs. I choose yeah. to eat less because of the way I look and I yeah. feel on it. Yeah. But I can if I want to. Whereas a guy, maybe another guy ate the same amount as me, would, would battle a lot more, yeah. put a lot yeah. more weight. So yeah. how do you sort of answer someone who says, well, you know, yes, that's fine, but you can't, throw everyone under the same blanket here hmm. and there's obviously different biochemistries going on different metabolisms etc I mean is there definitely a, a blanket health benefit for everyone but you'll just some will benefit more and some yeah. will benefit less yeah I, I did answer that question a little bit earlier with, with Mark and the yeah. first point is that the diet we propose is no processed foods and that's a key differentiator yeah, yeah, yeah. so you've got to kick the processed foods yeah. okay so now you're eating from the green list, but it does have carbohydrates on it, but it has the healthier carbohydrates. So if, like yourself, you are able to eat carbohydrates, then you can eat potatoes. And you could eat carrots and a few other high-carb, starchy, carbohydrate vegetables. But I wouldn't want you to go on to the okay, process. The key is the process. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, the key. Yeah, that's key. Yeah. Also, did, I mean, like, has the... We, we can kind of start wrapping this up, because otherwise we'll talk about this forever. Mm. But, but it has the... Um, has the quality of grain changed? Because, for example, we went recently to Croatia. We got business there and we had a pizza. And then we came back and I had a pizza here. And when I was here, I felt like I was pregnant. My yeah, stomach right. was pushing yeah, out right. so hard. Whereas over there, it wasn't. And I was actually chatting to Steve about it the other day. There must be a different quality grain, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, bread mm-hmm. is supposed to go off in one day. It's not yeah, going to last right. how right. yeah. long. So I imagine that's a big... uh, Yeah, the grains have changed dramatically. And uh, people with gluten intolerance, they've they've shown that if you put some of them on the historical grains 50 years ago, they don't show the same symptoms. So I think that the grains have changed Mm -hmm. quite substantially. And more sugar. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's an addictive. But I didn't really answer your final question is... We all live on a range of insulin resistance. And if you're profoundly insulin resistant, like myself, you just cannot eat carbs. It's, they're just, it's poison. Whereas if, like yourself, you're carbohydrate tolerant, yes, you, can, you could, can eat 20, 200, 300 grams of carbs a day. And you'll probably be fine all your life. But for, the problem with everyone today is that the, if you're born to a mother who eats a high-carbohydrate diet and the grandmother ate a high-carbohydrate diet, there's programming of that baby and they're more insulin resistant from the day they're born, and then they're weaned onto these high sugar wow. drinks and yeah, cereals, yeah. and then they're in trouble. So every generation becomes more and more insulin resistant, and so they become less able to eat carbohydrates. And the quality of the food is getting worse and worse. So you've yeah. got this big exactly. swarm of protein, yes. and then, hence the epidemic that we face with obesity yeah. and diabetes today. Yeah. Correct, correct, yeah. Guys, thanks. Really Mark. appreciate your time. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for coming through. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Mark. Lovely. Wonderful. I I mean, just.
to both of you a big thanks. Um, but Tim, especially to you, I mean, I was just saying, I listened to a podcast this morning with Mark Sisson and Joe Rogan, where Tim was mentioned on it for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think you're more famous now than any of the athletes that you speak to. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just keep up the good work. It's an amazing effort. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, going through the trial, you're quite right. Yeah. Nothing could have focused the world's attention on yeah. the low-carb diet as well as this trial. Yeah. It became a global phenomenon. So despite the fact that it was probably thickened your skin quite dramatically, yeah, exactly. but, it, but it had a positive In effect. In the end, it will have a hugely positive yeah. effect. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Steve. Thanks,